brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Athena Kablenu, and today I'm going to be talking to Gabrielle Zevin, the author of The Storied Life of AJ Fickery and the prize-winning children's book Elsewhere. Her latest novel, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, has been described by Erin Morgenstern as a beautifully wrought saga of human connection and the creative process. I'm going to describe it as bloody fabulous, if I may. Gabrielle, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's it's a pleasure. Um, firstly, this has got to be my first question. You've written a book which has nostalgia connected to 80s and 90s gaming. You have not once mentioned the Prince of Persia. Um, <laughs> this is a glaring omission. Can you please explain this? It's glaring. It jumped out every page. I was like, we're gonna we're gonna get to it. We're gonna get to it. No, I'm. I apologize <laughs> for not mentioning the Prince of Persia. You know, there's a really good memoir that he has written that shows the creative process of making the Prince of Persia. But the main reason I would say I did not mention Prince of Persia is because I am not a player of the Prince of Persia. Okay, so this is an honest book that's connected to your real world world experiences. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well as honest as any book is, but I would say that. You know, I did have to play games beyond what I had played myself. So, you know, it's not like going you don't go to college for video games. Some people do now, but you like, you know, I didn't. Um, And so I had to approach it more like an English major, which is what I was, you know, going and playing games that were beyond the games I usually played. But Prince of Persia was not one of them. You missed out. Please get an emulator and play it. Right? I, like, I, I, I insist on it. Has anyone else been a bit annoyed that you've not mentioned their favourite 80s or 90s game? Yeah, I think they are. And, you know, it's so funny because I think, like, people don't realise how much games are just lost, you know? Mm. It was a thing I experienced at one point, like, going back to look for a game that I had liked from childhood, this game called Gold Rush. You know, because games are tied to, like, particular hardware and things like that. You know, you can have this sort of, you know, seminal storytelling experience for yourself and you can't recreate it because you don't have like a Commodore <laughs> or, or whatever it is, you know. And we didn't have the presence of mine in the 80s and 90s to think it wouldn't be around forever. Right. I don't necessarily think like, especially with tech, we're not a nostalgic culture in a way. You know, I don't think we we're like, let's preserve uh all these games because someday we'll want to go look at the history of what this storytelling form was. And it's such a young form, you know, so I'm 44 years old and the form is pretty much like that age as well, you know. We're almost like the first documenters, if that's right. such a word. Right, it's this. like all the way, all those silent films were lost too, you right. know what I mean? Like, you know, there's maybe like 12 left or something and they're basically decaying in some like frozen attic somewhere, you know. Did you have that in mind when you conceived this story? Absolutely. So, you know, the first generation of people to play video games as children were born in the late 70s or early 80s. And in the U.S., we call them the Oregon Trail generation because you were likely to play this game Oregon Trail in a lab, you know, in a computer lab somewhere when you were a kid. And I think it's interesting because micro generations are you know, defined by access to technology. Like, did you have a cell phone when you were a kid or did you have internet in your house? Um, And so I was interested in telling the story of people who had been raised with video games as a storytelling experience in their lives. Like, how did that change how you thought of, you know, your work life, your personal life, death and everything else? And the cool thing was, this is a, I guess it's a Kunstler roman. It's the coming of age of an artist story that goes right alongside the coming of age of this industry, which is video games. Yeah, I've heard a 
uh, I've come across, I should say, an, a really lovely term in doing a bit of research about you. That's literary gamer, uh, which I think is really beautiful because what I loved about this book is it really connects the idea of creating a game with, with creating a piece of art. And I also like the way it approaches the idea of online gaming and online gaming worlds as, as a positive thing yeah. as opposed to negative. Was that intentional too, that you really wanted to explain to people who haven't grown up with this about why online worlds can showcase our beauty as well as, you know, the occasional moments where it's not so great? Well, that's a very loaded question in a way. (laughs) So the first thing I'll say is generally speaking, I think I've given up on the idea of fiction as a vehicle for social change, Mm. i.e. I don't think I can convince anyone of anything, (laughs) you know, like I don't think I can make you take away a meaning from the book per se. And so but that also changes the way I approach things. I think I go into books with questions and I don't necessarily come out with answers. But I think for me, sometimes I look at tech and I feel negative all the time. I feel like it's making us worse. But that's, you know, in a way, that's a silly point of view because tech is an inevitability in our lives, you know. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that having the Internet the way it is means that we're going to have to be better citizens. You know, we're going to have to be better citizens on the Internet. You know, there's no separation between who you are in your real life and who you are online. We have to figure out a way to integrate these things. And so I just wanted to write a book where I think that there was that showed the possibility for connections in virtual spaces and the possibility that we might not be the worst versions of ourselves behind the mask of an avatar. I, I think it really comes across and the discretion of that message really comes across in the book. I don't feel like I'm being preached to, but I, I t- personally took away loads of meanings like, oh, there's hope. Like, people right. are okay. Like, we right. are if okay. We, if we try harder, maybe we can be better. Yeah. You know, I, and I think that is something that you can say. But but no, I, you know, again, I don't know if I can, again, guarantee that anybody will take away anything. Like, I've been writing books for while. Like my first novel was published 17 years ago. And uh, the one thing you learn is that somebody will definitely take away a message from a book that is not the one you intended. And rarely will they take away the one that is the one you've intended. So I, I've kind of stopped worrying about what like the takeaways, if you will. I'd like to talk about character. Okay. Um, I greatly empathise with characters in this book that on first impressions, if I was to meet them in real life, I'd be like, oh, not for me, thank you. I'm thinking particularly <laughs> about uh, an older gentleman who uh, is a teacher and likes to have relationships <laughs> with his students. Yeah. Um, and also like a really privileged, handsome guy who seems to have all his feet. Like, I'll often meet someone and I'll be like, oh, not for me. And they become the most richest for me and mm. most interesting characters in the book. I was wondering if you started off saying, I'm going to, be really complex with them or did they evolve as you as you told the story? Well, I think I've gotten better at writing character the more novels I've written. And some of that is, you know, human beings are able to hold two points of view in their minds at the same time. And so once you realize that characters, but characters are sometimes they're positioned as if like they must be consistent, they must think, but people are not consistent that way. And so I think I've been able to allow more I guess, peopleness into my characters as as I've gone on. But like with regard to Dove, you know, for me, he was all about thinking about a certain kind of man who did really well before Me Too, you know, and then after Me Too, his life is like would be quite different. And so the book ends in 2012, which is five years before Me Too. Um, and I will sometimes have younger readers come up to me and say, like, why isn't Dove punished? I'm like, well, because Me Too hasn't happened yet. And that kind of guy was fine until about 2017. Yeah. You know? Like, I don't think it happened to me or any of my friends. But if anyone I knew was in a relationship with their teacher, we'd be like, oh, great. Right? <laughs> we'd, probably, we'd probably be jealous. Like, oh, my God. Like, he's taking you out to where for dinner? That's amazing. Right. And I think, like, you know, to me, just living longer and it's 
and, and it's a point throughout the book, not just with Dove, but living longer reveals to me how the things that you think are definitely fixed, the things that you think that you definitely believe change over the years, you know, and even the things we believe as society change over the years. Yeah, and it's really clever, I think, the way in which bad things happen, but we can't work out who's complicit in it. I'm right. thinking particularly about the kind of uh, sexism that uh, is experienced by one of the characters. And, you know, mm. she invents a game or she co-creates this game and she doesn't get the credit she deserves, but no one's there going, oh, we don't know her. She didn't right. do it. It just sort of happens. I think it, it kind of shows how institutional bias works. Like, it's not about one person no. doing one bad thing. It's just about the context not being in our favour. Again, like, are there any real-world experiences that informed you including this in the novel? Or were you, were you just telling the truth and, like, this is how it is? I mean, there were real-world experiences, but most of my experiences, because I'm not a game designer, come from being a novelist, you know. And so, you know, with regard to Sadie, I think I was trying to depict the ways in which there are industries that prefer to have a young, white, you know, a male person to promote. And so that is an advantage when you are 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 coming up in any kind of field in the arts. I've definitely seen it, you know, the way like the book industry is like this too, the way at least it used to love its wonder boys, you know? Yes. And so I think that's not unique to, to games or probably to books or to any other field as well. You know, so it was something I was definitely thinking about. You know, I can give you an example, like uh, I had a book that came out a couple of years ago. The reviews were, you know, pretty good. And the book went on to be a good bestseller. But where the reviews were, like, great was in the audiobook version, which was read by a man. So it's like people instantly preferred the book when it had, like, a male voice of authority right. on it. They were like, this book is just so much deeper and richer than we thought. You That'd know? be really interesting to do an experiment. Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> to have a female voice read it out. And, right. I yeah. think the reviews probably would have been exactly the same as they had been for the regular book if it had been a female voice, you know. And it just, but but I see it all the time. Time. And again, part of the thing with Sadie was how sort of uh, rigorous you have to be if you're a female artist and you want to be taken seriously, you know, how uh, intense. And uh, anyway, so I, a lot of Sadie's experiences are probably they're not literally mine, but they are they are often close to mine. As a stand-up comedian, they were highly, highly relatable experiences. Right. Like it's, <laughs> it's definitely a, a reflection of what happens in in broader creative industries as yeah. well. Um, I really think it, I keep saying I love, I love, I love. I'm getting embarrassed now, but I really do love it. Uh, I love the way the book, and you describe it as a, it's not a romance, but it is It is a love story. Can you speak a bit about the platonic relationship that's at the core of the book uh, and the kind of ideas you wanted to explore? Yes, I can. I think that we have all kinds of people in the world and there are all kinds of new stories being told about those people. And yet we have a lot of narratives that are old fashioned, you know, that say that you're still going to have these kinds of lives that end in, you know, maybe marriage and children and that kind of thing. And I think I got to a point where I just realized that I'm 44 years old, as I said, and I'm not married and I don't have children. And so, you know, in a way, like I'm not a person who is necessarily addressed in in books, you know, and, and some of this came from the fact that I, I don't know if you know the column Modern Love. Do you know this column? It's no. like this. Well, they made a show of it, by the way. And so it's this kind of big column in the in the United States and in the New York Times that talks about relationships and stuff. Well, I did a Modern Love to promote a book and I hate like writing personal essays, but I did it because it's a very popular column. And this column I wrote they titled it The Secret to Marriage is Never Getting Married. And if you claim to have the secret to anything, people will instantly hate you. But of course, it wasn't my title. And it was about how I've been in a relationship for a long time, but never got married, basically. And instantly, people were angry about this column. <laughs> 
<laughs> and instantly I got feedback that was like, um, you know, you can't know anything about love or about relationships because you don't have children. And I was thinking that's really quite sad in a way because the life I have is the only life I'll have. And, and, and I think, you know, as a human, you realize lives can only have so many experiences in them, you know. And so I think I wanted to write about that. It started from maybe that, uh, just thinking about the other kinds of love stories there are in the world, the other kinds of just stories, period, there are in the world, you know. And so it really is a, a story that's a and, and again, this isn't like exactly Sam and Sadie, but it's really a story that's about a love story of the mind, if not the body, you know. And that kind of intense emotional collaboration you can have as two artists working on something together. Yeah, and and, and the book makes this point, and it might be a spoiler because it's such a lovely idea. But you, you know, you you have many lovers in your life if you're lucky. If you haven't, that's fine too. But but how many people do you create something with, right? Like right. how like that relationship was the most unique. What they had is unique. All the relationships outside of it are replicated. And I think that's beautiful too. And it's, a, and it's a wonderful message for people who feel pressured. Yeah. And I think like for Sam and Sadie, they are the most important people in their lives. And yet they are not to each other any of the usual suspects. They're not spouses. They don't have a child together. They don't do any of the things you're supposed to do. And yet be that as it may, these are the most important people in each other's lives. It's a really nice exploration into seeing what's in front of your face. And just as an aside, you know, just to kind of talk about friendship generally, I think, you know, friendship is probably the least valued love of all the loves in society. And that's because probably because it's not a productive love. It doesn't lead to anything, you know. And so really, I also wanted to write a book that was about how formative friendships can be and how life-saving they can be and how in a way it maybe it's even a purer love because it doesn't lead to anything. Friendship just exists for itself. That is a beautiful note to go on to the next section of this, <laughs> which is your objects. And we asked you to bring in a few things to talk to us about, as we always do on the Penguin podcast. So let's talk about something that makes you happy. Well, recently I was in Boston on book tour and I went to the Glass Flowers, which feature in the book. So the Glass Flowers are these crazy educational teaching tools that somebody made in the, I think, the end of the 1800s. And they made these flowers in glass to teach students about biology and botany. Um, and they're kind of crazy, you know. It's a bit over-engineered. Like. Right, like, like, like that. this was the only way to do this. And they're so kind of beautiful. And they are like, they decay just like real flowers, by the way, because it's they're so delicate. But I went to the, to the museum to look at them again. And it made me feel really like happy and peaceful. One, to have depicted a place that I loved in a book that is doing pretty well made me feel... <laughs> <laughs> made me feel really good about it. And then also just thinking about how I walked past this place when I went to Harvard, like all of the time, and really never appreciated that it was there and I could go look at them whenever I wanted. And, and, and it sort of reminds me of how when I was younger, I was really smart, but a little incurious about things. And I feel like I, I felt happy knowing that I think I'm a little bit better in that way now. I feel like, you know, the older I get, the more curious I am about everyone and like everything. And that made me happy to feel that way because, again, as a young person, I just was into how clever I was. And and, I, and now I think the world seems much more like a buffet to me, you know? Right, and we're all more appreciative of like what we're surrounded by. I don't by. know, and people start looking more beautiful to you all the time too. You know, I think like I had such limited notions about beauty, limited notions about, you know, success, limited notions about what life was like. And somehow the glass flower... <laughs> 
they embody. The glass flowers embody all of this, you know, that like, you know, for instance, they existed as a teaching tool, but now they're just beautiful because they are beautiful. You right. Know? There's nothing there's nothing more they need to do but sit there and be like this lovely, you know, testament to how humans used to be. Their know? existence says so much more right. than their purpose. So it did make me happy. It also made me sad at the same time. Like I almost felt like crying the whole time because I went alone because I was on book tour alone. And anyway, I didn't have anyone to go with me. And I was just like, there were a bunch of tourists there. And it was nice to be, I hadn't really gone to like a museum in a while because of the pandemic, you know, so it was nice to just be out and about with other people futilely photographing glass flowers because when you take pictures of them you know what they look like flowers I mean this makes it even funnier that in the book when I think you say and Sam go in the museum's shut yeah yeah it's shut <laughs> So they didn't even get to see it. It's just, like, uh, like I think it's open like nine to five, so they must have. But it probably was closed for cleaning. But anyway, but yeah, I uh, I just felt kind of happy and sad all at once being in that museum and feeling those things. Just on that note, it's not the only location in the book that is a real location that, that's special to you. Uh, no, yeah, they're all, I think, you know, the book was, I started writing the book in 2018, but I wrote a, a huge part of it during the pandemic. And I can feel in the description of places like a sensual longing for places I could no longer visit and people I could no longer see, you know. And so I don't think I ever wrote places that way uh, before this book. So they're all like cities I've lived in or worked in. I mean, it just jumps out at the page as well. And I think it really adds texture to the characters and what they go through, especially because they're of such significance to the characters, particularly Los Angeles, having to, having to have to move there from New York, which is Sam's story. Yes. And K-Town in Los yeah. Angeles, which I didn't even know there was a K-Town in Los Angeles. Yeah, there's a huge K- It's like, I think it's the biggest K-Town other than in actual Korea, which is its like own K-Country. But, you know, <laughs> I think it's like the biggest K-Town, certainly in the US. I can't say like in the, in the world, but it's a really, it's a huge K-Town. It's miles and miles of it. And I had the experience of going there for the first time when I was maybe about like in my early 30s. And I just had this notion that if I had been raised there, I'm half Korean. If I had been raised there, my books would have been entirely different. Like they would have, I would have positioned kind of the Asian-ness of myself at the center of a thing. And just like seeing billboards that had like Korean people on it and realizing that, you know, I could exist at the center of the world. It's something that Sam experiences in the book. And I, and I just think how much of like your ethnic identity shifts a little bit depending on where you are and who you're with. Yeah, I kind of describe it as like being othered, being a dial. And yeah. sometimes just like, it's a 10. And it's sometimes just kind of dialed down. It's, it's very yeah. accurate to how I feel. I mean, that's exactly accurate. Um, and, and how much like, again, as a biracial person, um, I just never know how much somebody's dial when they look at me is going to be turned up either. I'm like, oh, are you go- who are you going to see when you look at? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's, def- it's definitely, I feel like, a story that's told in a book through your characters. I wanted to write about biracial identity. It's weird. I think when I started out as a novelist, I saw, like, fiction writing as a kind of mask you could wear. And I think over the years, I've gotten, I felt more and more like I wished to reveal myself. And, you know, Sam's ethnic identity is pretty much the same as mine. And I just wanted to write about the ways in which when you are, like, of two different cultures, you kind of feel like you are of neither culture and both culture at the same time. Something that has changed you. You know, it's funny, like I could have a big stack of my books uh, and just have them sitting here, like the ones I've written before. And I think in a way, like when you write books, it just each one you write sort of changes your experience of what the job of being a writer is. And the thing that's really changed me uh, above all the things, is probably failing. So some of my books have done pretty well before, and some of them have done less well, you know. And so I have had all the experiences that a novelist can have, I think, in that sense. 
And I think when I started out, I was terrified of failing. I was an overachiever, you know. I went to I went to Harvard. I did all those things. But like when when my first novel came out, it immediately failed. <laughs> and I felt like I was walking around like covered in ash, basically, and that everybody could just see like, oh, wow, like look at that failure, you know. Um, but in fact, uh, over the years, failing has and I and I keep doing it. And there's a part in the book where Sadie talks about it, too, about how, you know, once you do anything uh, creative, you have the chance to fail again. And, and so I'm aware of that. And I actually now find failure to be kind of a creative place. Nobody is calling you and it gets really quiet and you can hear yourself. And so I think that's a thing that's changed me is you know, making books and knowing that I can't control if they succeed or fail. All I can control is the work that I do. Yeah, as a creative, I'm going to write that bit down. <laughs> it's really important. We don't control how people receive work. And it is true that things can be ahead of their time or something else right, can come timing out. Timing just yeah. generally is so important. You can just have written a book that comes out at the wrong time, which I have certainly done. I wrote a book that was about Me Too that came out eight weeks before Me Too oh, happened. Right. You know? So it was uniquely positioned to be not well received. You yeah. know? But if it had come out maybe eight weeks later, people would have been like, yeah, look at this book. But, you know, so I, but over and over again, you, you find that. And again, I feel like we don't talk about failure enough, you know, so, you know, if you look at kind of like interviews with writers, they're basically like, here's the story of success, you know, for a debut or something and then or whatever the most recent success is. But I feel like failure is so important to being creative. It's so weird to say it, but it is. Right. And in whatever creative industry you're in, like your chances of success are actually quite small. That's right. just the reality. And fear of failure is not really a useful stance because fear of failure then like pushes you into all these things that are not interesting in a way creatively. Yes, this is wonderful. This feels less like a podcast than more like a session, like a, a workshop for me. <laughs> for both of us. Yeah. We're like working out some things here. Okay, uh, a song that moves you. The Book of Love by The Magnetic Fields. So this is a really interesting album. It's called 69 Love Songs. And so he wrote all of these different like versions of love songs, you know, but the, I think the best one or the one that's most known, my favorite one is Book of Love, which he describes like the lyrics are the Book of Love is long and boring, you know, um, but it's so very touching. And to me, it's very much like what the book is like, you know, um, just that love is not always straightforward. I think that love should be embraced no matter how it arrives and with whatever inconveniences it brings. So I just, I love this song. Weirdly, I was listening to an interview with an author friend of mine on NPR in the US and the song came on <laughs> while I was vacuuming and I was immediately crying, basically. And I had to write to my friend to be like, "I they should not play uh, this song in the middle of an interview. This, you know, unless you want everybody to just like crash their cars and I don't know, stop vacuuming or something. I, I feel like there's this the idea of unconditional love is it's said a lot, but it's not really put into practice. Right. So when you either see it happen or you hear some art that describes what that actually means, it yes. is really moving. It is really moving. And, you know, I don't know if you have you ever heard this song. I had I looked it up, actually. Yeah. I understand Peter Gabriel covered it. So yeah. that was like. That was the seal of approval for me. Like, right. when, like he covered it because I originally thought, oh, it must be his song. And right. I, oh, no, no, he covered it. Okay, fine. It's a classic. It's yeah. a banger, as we'd say in the UK. His version is very dramatic. You know, he big, but the, I, Gabriel, right? the original yeah. version is very like kind of like lo-fi. Yeah, you it's know? so pay, it's so slow. It's, yeah, and, like it's like spoken word, but like on a tape recorder where the batteries run out. Right. So it's like slow. <laughs> yeah, I could I could totally 
understand why it's you would kind of like Tom Waitsy or something. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you can make that an adjective. Tom Waitsy. You it's, know, it is, we've done it. Yeah. You know, you've, how many books have you written? You can make up words now. Sure. I think by the tenth book, you can make up words. That's Tom Waits esque. We'll go with that instead. Something you should have thrown away. I have like two answers to this, like a silly answer and a serious answer. They're all serious. They're all, okay, serious. they're all serious. Well, the serious, no. Well, I guess this is like semi-serious, but my my silly answer is my flat iron. Because for years, I was like trying to tame this hair into something like straight, probably because I remember reading articles as a kid that like you looked less professional if your hair was quite curly, which mine is. Um, so I wish I had just thrown it away because it does horrible things to your hair. And it's just horrible, um, generally speaking. Listen, put, put it there, high five. OK, as someone <laughs> who used to have a, a relaxed haircut, I've got dreadlocks now for those listening. Like we've all been there. And right? it's like it's mythology. It's mythology. No one is looking at you going, you've got curly hair. No, you can't send that email. You're not good enough. OK, but, but like, the thing it's... is, in the 90s, there were sometimes I remember reading like I think it was like Marie Claire magazine. And there was a whole article with with where they asked men what were their perceptions of of women. Right. And so they had like a picture of a woman who looked kind of like me with like like long, dark, curly hair. And these men were all like, she looks messy. She looks unprofessional she looks you know and so I just remember reading this and like really like internalizing this and 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 by the way it's not like it was just this one magazine it was kind of everywhere but anyway flat irons are horrible like we're ironing like you iron shirts like right you know, like why are you, you doing this to iron, some part of your like body that's you connected to you that's that musical they iron their hair right. like, on the iron <laughs> like the things we've been through my serious answer though which is I guess that was semi-serious it's and, very serious and it's actually it's hair serious. is very serious yeah. in a way you know but it is like I think for a long time I thought that you know people were thinking about all the books I had written before the book I was writing and then I realized that in fact nobody was thinking about me at all and that that was, in fact, a freeing thing, you know. And so the thing that I would kind of have thrown away was just the idea of that anybody was ever thinking about me, that basically your creative journey is one that you're just on alone. You know, nobody's thinking, well, she did that before or she failed doing that before or anything like that. So so both of those things, somewhere between flat irons and everything but the present moment. That's Contrasting, but also similar in the right. same way. Right? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, something that reminds you of home. Well, like I live in Los Angeles, which is the least sentimental city on the planet. Basically, anything can come down at any time, you know, where they're always tearing things down. But one of the cool things about Los Angeles is all the strange architecture everywhere. Um, and some of it's in the book as well, like the Clown Arena building. So it's this crazy apartment building that outside has a statue of a male clown who is wearing a tutu and he kind of kicks his legs and he's I think geez I want to say he's like 30 feet tall or something you know and that's just so LA to me or I used to live on a street and it's described in the book in Silver Lake and at the end of that street was this weird sign that was put up by a podiatrist and it's called the happy foot sad foot sign and it spins around and so people have this superstition in Los Angeles that if you see sad foot now sad foot is like He's like a foot that has like damage to his feet. It's hard to describe. <laughs> it's this weird meta thing. If you see sad foot, the, it, supposedly you'll have like a bad day for the rest of the day. And if you see happy foot, happy foot, he's like miraculously repaired by the power of podiatry. Um, 
then you'll have a good day. Now, sadly, Happy Foot, Sad Foot was torn down at the end of 2019 and just in classic L.A. style. He just ended up in like a like a shop somewhere. But I love all these weird L.A. things. There's like a store that's a huge donut. Some of this is googie architecture, I think they call it, um, which is like these weird uh, like pop art things like, uh, a, you know, a restaurant that looks like a hat or, or I love how literal kind of it all is. It's like it's it, well, we fix people's feet and this is a foot. And yeah. it's broken. <laughs> It's incredibly silly. Like, it's weird, like, because he's a foot with feet, which always freaks me out. Like, I'm like, why does this foot have... He also has hands, by the way. Right. He also has a face on his foot, you know. But, like, his, like, bunion toe is, like, a bandaged up, like, his big toe. And anyway, but he... But, yes, it's very literal, but he's no longer in uh, the podiatrist move, so that's why the sign went down. And, you know, again, I don't know if you would historically preserve that kind of thing anyway, but uh, it certainly had sentimental value to a, a lot of people. But that is something that reminds me of home um, whenever I see something like particularly kitsch I'm like LA you know yeah it's not quite the grace of glass flowers no (laughs) like I mean LA has you know I just like I want to say something in defense of LA which is I think it's a very difficult city to master you know I've lived in pretty much only big cities most of my life and like New York lays herself out for you much more easily but LA is a city like that you can go to the wrong neighborhood and you can think I hate LA you know but if you go to a different place in LA you'd be like I love it I want to stay here forever you know it's kind of like you know 50 cities in one city does living in LA has it changed your writing um, it has changed my writing. Mainly I moved because I made enough money like writing about a decade ago, I'd say, where I could either buy a really small apartment in New York or I could buy, uh, you know, a small a, a rather small house in Los Angeles. And so I went with the small house in Los Angeles basically for the privilege of doing laundry in the privacy of my own home. That just seemed really attractive at that point. But it has changed my writing. You know, I think you have to make more of an effort in Los Angeles to meet people and to do things. New York, like everybody's just in your face all the time, you know. So I think maybe having a little bit more space, like mental space, physical space, and also um, it just has made me more... Uh, open to seeing people as not just a mass of people, you know, <laughs> open to more seeing people in all their nuance and color. That's beautiful. And I think that's a wonderful thought to end this podcast on. Thank you. It's been so great to talk to you today. And thank you for listening wherever you are. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and to make sure you never miss an episode and you can leave us a review too and help get the word out. And finally, if you want to know more about this podcast or Gabrielle's work, go to penguin.co.uk forward slash podcasts. I'm Athena Cabenu. See you next time.